Welcome to the action field. We're here for episode three. Let's get right into it. Let's get straight into business. Um, actually, no, I'm just going to say I love that intro music so much. Sun City Girls laying it down. That sound is just amazing. Speaking of sound, and today's episode is a little bit about sound. I'll just tell a story quickly. It's like a bit of an uh, Eastern mystical story. It goes a little something like this. So when God was like shaping man out of clay, he saw the soul and he commanded the soul to enter the body. The soul, like being free, um, like to get about, fly about wherever it likes, said, hell no, God, I'm not getting in that prison house. God being God then commanded the angels to sing. And the sound was so intoxicating that the soul simply had to enter the human body in order to fully experience sound and see what it's like from this new being's perspective. So how's that for a story? It's actually um, from this book. Let me just grab it one sec. This book is called The Mysticism of Sound and Music by Hazrat Inayat Khan. And he tells that very story um, a few times and attributes it to different people. At one time he says it was Hafiz, the Persian poet, who told the story. And another time he says it's just Eastern mystical, um, an Eastern mythology, basically. Um, but yeah, such a great story that I love the soul's just refusal to enter this prison house and then being so intoxicated by, by the sound, by the beautiful sound of the angels, you know, and the angels, like it was just this, the rhythm and the melody and the harmony was just so good. It made like, um, it made the sirens sound like a New York, uh, you no know, wave band from 1981. But anyway, today's episode, we're going to focus on Ayrton Senna and the uh, brilliant Senna documentary. Um, straight up, we're just going to get into a little bit of a sound clip of Senna, uh, charging through the Monaco, um, all right, this is a little overdub. I know it's Monaco, but for some reason, I haven't been able to shake calling it Monaco. As a kid, we had a Super Nintendo and there was this game called Super Monaco Grand Prix. And I'd never heard anyone say Monaco, so I always just pronounced it Monaco. So <laughs> when I see it, I instinctively just say Monaco. So when you hear that, just, you know, excuse me. Um, I know it's Monaco, but I just haven't been able to shake it. Anyway, let's get back to the action. Charging through the Monaco um, Grand Prix track from 1988. This is like some onboard footage. I recommend getting online and checking out. You'll see how raw the driving experience was back then for the drivers. They're actually still changing gears by, by a gear lever by hand. Whereas now, if you watch the F1, it's just, you know, little uh, paddles or buttons, they actually click on the steering wheel. So they never have to take two hands off the steering wheel. But back then they're still changing gears with one hand. It looks like he's right hand in this instance. But yeah, let's just check out a little bit of this sound. Really, really unbelievable stuff. I um, 
completely recommend getting online and checking that out. Um, you'll just see how hard the drivers actually have to work to maintain control of this vehicle and how that track in particular is just so goddamn confronting and dangerous. And at the start of the documentary, he's being interviewed and he was saying that he just had arrived at the track and he was sort of new to F1. And that he said, yeah, basically any mistake, any even just one mistake on that track will lead to an accident. So getting straight to the documentary now, um, and uh, early on in the piece, you see Senna being interviewed. And I just want to play this whole interview and then I'll speak about it afterwards. He just shows like such remarkable wisdom for someone who's relatively new to the sport and still pretty young. So let's just check that out. When I first came to Formula One in 84, I was starting, so I had so much to learn and to achieve that anything, any good result was a progress, was a motivation. Then I changed to a bigger team, to Lotus, and I still went up and up and up, and I'm still doing it. So even when I have some problems, I look always to the next race, because maybe one race I have no chance, but next one or the next five will be good against one bad one. So you got to try to make the numbers bigger and bigger. There you go, Senna laying it down. Um, particularly that last thing you said, trying to make the numbers bigger and bigger. What he means is like, I always can, as I always do, relate it to football. Let's say you play like shit one week, right? Are you going to let that affect you um, and get inside your head and think, oh, no, I've lost form or whatever? Or are you going to like apply some wisdom like he did in that instance and say, look, Perhaps it wasn't my game this weekend, but you know what? I can have a goddamn great week on the track. I can hit the track hard train like an absolute gun. Why? Because I want to play like a gun. And then turn it around and play, come back next week. And then you know what? Maybe I might not be on top of my game that weekend, but the next week I can play. Next week, the next week, the next week. So then if you look at it instead of just being one week trying to define your form, look at it in terms of like four or five or six weeks and say, look, Mm, wasn't best on ground every single performance, but you know what? Four out of the six, I was goddamn competitive and did everything I could to contribute to the team's performance. Um, in mentioning earlier, like I did saying that Senna displays such remarkable wisdom for someone so young, I see a lot in the documentary and you even hear from them, his parents were in his ear a lot and like really supportive. Um, the thing with that is that sometimes, I think obviously for Senna, look, his, his parents were really wise and gave him great advice. Um, but often one's parents can, although they would always endeavor and have good intentions in terms of the advice they give you, they can often just be a bloody hindrance and telling you all sorts of shit that really doesn't concern you at all. Um, I remember one time when I was playing in Adelaide, my dad was saying, oh, listen, mate, they're talking about you in the media saying blah, 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 blah. And I just couldn't work out at the time why, why the hell he would tell me that. Here's the thing about the football media, right? On the media with sport, on the media with anything. Let's keep it specific to football because that's my personal experience. The football media is there for people who know nothing about the inside workings of a football club or about what an athlete really goes to. So if you are a professional athlete, never pay any, don't even look or listen to the media. They know nothing. And they're providing that information for people who know even less. And uh, 
entertained by <laughs> often ex-players going into the media and talking absolute shit um, in order to entertain basically the bogans and dickheads of society <laughs> who know nothing. <laughs> so, yeah, even though people can be well-intentioned in terms of the advice they give you, you have to be really discerning in who you choose to actually listen to and what information you choose to actually take on board and embody because you're going to be exposed to bullshit, right? You've just got to basically uh, have, a th have a thick skin and basically just have a filter inside your head and just filter out the bullshit. There's going to be a lot. And um, you want to be able to focus focus on, on, on those who provide you with wisdom based on perhaps experience, perhaps intelligent, perhaps on deep love and care and the combination of that, that sort of love and care and experience when it comes together can often provide some really great wisdom, much like I would as your high performance coach, right? <laughs> so we're just going to skip a little bit ahead here. Um, we're going to go to that same Grand Prix that I played the sound clip from at the start, which is 1988 in Monaco. Adam Senna has gone across to the big team now that Alain Prost is a driver on. He's the current world champion. So they're now both on the same team. Ayrton is hugely far ahead in the race. Um, he's doing great. And we're just going to hear uh, his thoughts on what he's experiencing at that point in time. That day, I suddenly realized that I was no longer driving it conscious and I was in a different dimension for me. The circuit for me was a tunnel, which I was just going, going, going. And I realized I was well beyond my conscious understanding. Awesome, right? That's what I would say as an athlete you call being in the zone where you're acting purely on instinct. There is no thought. You don't need to think. Everything is unfolding in front of you, which you're a part of, and it's thoughtless, and you are in the zone performing at your peak, like at your absolute peak, and loving it and feeling completely alive. Uh, there's a book called, what was it called? Maybe it's called Flow by this uh, guy, Mihaly, Sikment Mihaly. He also calls it Flow State, um, where it's basically exactly the same thing, where you're so engaged with the task at hand that it actually doesn't really require conscious thought, so to speak. So like Senna is saying there, he was way beyond his conscious understanding of what was going on. He was just like going down a tunnel, basically. And that is just the most glorious thing. And I think it's something to really prize and shoot for as an athlete or anyone who's involved in a um, job or something that requires sort of peak performance for a given period of time. You want to be able to enter that flow state it's uh it's 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 actually quite magic um having having experienced it like quite a few times myself as a football also being in a band that we never really did anything big as a band but when you are all completely connected and moving in the one direction together you sort of enter that flow state and it's a really really beautiful thing 
there we have my bloody Valentine from, I would contend, what is potentially the greatest album of all time. I don't, don't usually even, if you would have heard, let songs play out in their entirety because um, we're <laughs> running short on time. I'm trying to do all this in like 35 minutes, maybe. 30 minutes, ideally. Um, and songs usually just sort of padded out too much. But I, it's, I just, it inspires so much love in me. And, and the title of this album actually leads into the next, um, the next little part I'm going to talk about with Ayrton Senna. The album's called Loveless. And I had a realization just recently when I was studying what was level four of my Rishi studies with um, Laura Poole at Mahasoma, and the module was on love. And basically she was talking, my teacher Laura was talking about how in order to experience love, we can't have uh, perfection. It's actually imperfections that allow us to experience love. And then a sort of little light bulb went off in my head and I thought, oh yeah, my bloody Valentine and the album Loveless. Basically, the band sent their label broke because they forced them to spend so much money mixing the record. It's rumored to be 250,000 pounds. And this is back in like 1991 is how much they spent on mixing the record. Because the band just wanted it to be perfect, to be absolutely perfect. And they push so hard for that perfection that I reckon that's why the album is called Loveless, because it went beyond love and into perfection. In um, my Vedic studies, in fact, on that very day when I had that realization, we were speaking about this term. Now, I think if I remember correctly, it's called Shunyavada. And that means when you go beyond the manifest and back into the unmanifest and you reach perfection, but it's somewhere you don't want to go because basically it means death. Death is the only way to achieve perfection because as long as we're alive, as long as we're on this um, manifest plane, this temporal plane, we're involved in time, as Joseph Campbell would say, we're involved in suffering. There is no perfection. So... We don't want to go there. So this leads into the next bit, right? So this same race, uh, that 1988 Monaco Grand Prix, where Senna was so far ahead of Elaine Prost. Basically, Senna had got a message from his team saying, okay, look, you're like five minutes ahead or something ridiculous like that. Slow down, man. Just slow down. You are going to win. There is no need for you to keep going so aggressively hard and constantly being on the edge of like going too far. But basically, he did go too far, ended up crashing and lost the race. And his teammate, Alain Prost, crossed the line in first. And then what Prost says in an interview after the race is that Ayrton was basically trying to humiliate him, trying to humiliate his teammate by just beating him by so much. So even though Ayrton had experienced being in, in that very same race, being in the zone, being in flow state, being in a state where he was sort of beyond his conscious understanding of what was happening, he actually took it too far. And what I would contend is that his desire 
to win became a selfish desire. It was no longer a desire that served the team best because to serve the team best, he's just got to cross the line in first and he'll take the win, take the points. Great thing for him. Great thing for his team. Obviously not so much for his teammate, Alain Prost, but they're both on the same team, right? So they're going to bank the win. But no, Senna basically experienced what they call in the Bhagavad Gita. Remember, this is what we covered last week with the translation by Eknath Iswaran. So in the foreword or in the introduction, he's talking about Kama, K-A-M-A. So here he says, Kama is not desire, it's selfish desire. Now there's a phrase called Nishkama Karma, which is what you want to experience. It literally means work that is without Kama, that is without selfish desire. And then he goes further on to say that the Buddha calls it Tanha, T-A-N-H-A, translation, thirst, the fierce compulsive craving for personal satisfaction that demands to be slaked at any cost, whether to oneself or to others. So I would contend that in this race, that that, that Kama, K-A-M-A or Tanha, T-A-N-H-A, which the Buddha said is that thirst actually took control of Ayrton and pushed him to go like too far in order to satisfy his cravings to be the absolute best by humiliating his teammate and beating him by what knows in the end would have been like 10 minutes or something like that. But here is why Ayrton Senna is so great or why I love him so much. So we're just going to cross back to him and hear what he has to say after the race. Initially, he was so like devastated that um, he disappeared for like three hours and no one saw him afterwards because he was just so bitterly disappointed with with himself. But let's just listen to what he has to say afterwards. I just came to so close to perfection that we can, that I, 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 I relaxed and I open windows for mistakes. And I learned that there, and um, since then, I progressively come back because I lost some confidence at that moment. And I progressively, I, fought, I fight back, and I got much stronger after that, that incident. Somehow I got closer to, to God, and that has been very important for me as a man. I love that guy so much. Saying there that, you know, because of that, he actually got closer to God. The way I would sort of translate that is, and, uh, you know, Marcus Aurelius talks about this um, a lot. It's like, how are you going to change or transform what happens to you to work in your favor? So there, Senna was saying that basically he came away from that and was able to as a result, get better, even though initially it did rob him of some confidence. He was able to sort of transform that experience into fuel for his own fire, for his own godlike desire, which is the, the desire that serves both yourself and, in this context, his team to actually go out there and do his absolute best for the team and for himself. This is the Nishkama Karma. So to go out there and compete fiercely for the prize. Remembering that the definition of athlete, the etymology of athlete, if we go back to ancient Greece, is to compete for the prize. Not to win the prize, to compete 
for the prize. Sim. 
pisei a flor A mim mesmo e a meu irmão Que mensagens, que caminhos Que traços estão nesse chão Onde fica a tua estrela? What an incredible track there by Lula Cortez. It's the first track of this album and it's called Tria de Sume. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Hopefully there's enough listeners one day where someone can hear that and say, man, that was completely wrong. Love being proven wrong. If I'm actually going to learn something, that'd be great. I uh, just want to go back to something we were speaking about a little bit earlier in the show. So when Senna was in front in that race and he was already five minutes ahead, his team was in his ear saying, God damn it, man, slow down. You don't need to do this. You're going to win anyway. Um, the point I want to make with that is that that's specific to that sport. Um, now, the reason I say that is because one of my favorite um, sports dudes of all time is John Wooden. Now, he was the coach of UCLA, I think it was, basketball team. So he's a college basketball coach. And ESPN says he's actually the greatest sports coach of all time. Basically, he went through this era with them where he coached them to 10 premierships or championships, whatever the hell they call it over there, in a row, right? So I read one of his books and he was saying that when he was coaching basketball, he simply would not tolerate players criticizing each other at all, pointing the finger at each other and criticizing each other. And I read that as a former footballer and I thought, oh, okay, I guess that's sport specific. And it very much is because in the game I grew up playing and had a career in, it's like, oh, you can absolutely point the finger at your teammate and challenge them to do better. The game is so intense out on the field that if you don't do that in the moment, well, shit, you know, your teammate might just actually go down a bit of a spiral of self-doubt and lose his confidence right then and there. Whereas if you can challenge him and say, you can do better than that, come on. And then, of course, like I've said on prior shows, at you know, quarter time, half time, you follow it up with a teaching point. Um, but back to what I was getting at is that that is sports specific. There's not necessarily crossovers between sports. So ultimately the point I'm making is that whilst Senna was so far ahead and he didn't need to keep going so aggressively in a game like Australian rules football, for instance, if you were to come in at three quarter time, your team was 10 goals ahead. The last goddamn thing you want to do in the world is go out there in the last quarter and just be like, oh, no, we've won the game. Let's just sort of see it through. And, you know, we'll still go hard, but, you know, we're not going to try, you know, potentially get injured or something like that. No. No, I'm going to swear here. OK, so I'm sorry if anyone's offended. <laughs> what you do in that instance is you go out in the last quarter, you put your foot on the opposition's fucking throat and you destroy them. You kick another 10 goals and you send a message to everyone in the league that you are fierce competitors and you will never take your foot off the accelerator and you will crush teams at every opportunity you get. This takes me back to my time at Sandringham Football Club, which is in the VFL. So it's the um, step down from AFL. This is after my 
little four-year AFL career playing at Sandringham. And we had a very good team. We actually won three premierships in a row. And it was in one of those years, perhaps like the second or third premiership year, we went out to Frankston and um, we were a lot better than the opposition. And I think at three-quarter time, it would have been something like that. We would have been like 10 goals up. And then in the last quarter, Frankston came out and would have kicked like seven or eight goals and we only kicked one. And so we ended up winning by, you know, three, four, maybe even five goals. So we all came in after the game and we were, like I said, a successful team. So we you actually used to winning. So we were, you know, not over the moon, but we're in pretty good spirits. Our coach, Mark Williams, arguably the greatest coach I've ever had. This isn't the Mark Williams who they call Choco. This is another Mark Williams who actually did himself go on to have an AFL career as a, I think he was on ball coach at Richmond. Um he got us in the room and he's a really a, a, a lovely dude, calm, collected. In this instance, he absolutely tore strips of us. I have never heard him that aggressive, that angry. Oh, he's never challenged us as a playing group more. He actually specifically saying, you are weak as piss, weak as piss. And everyone was just like, oh, shit. And it was like a really good thing. We actually needed it. It was a massive wake up call saying, no, you do not take your foot off the accelerator. Perhaps not such a good analogy, seeing that's potentially what Ant and Senna should have done. Saying, no, you don't take your foot off the throttle, all right? Or your hand off the throttle. You destroy the team. You destroy the opposition. You go out there and you kick another 10 goals. Every chance you get, you tackle them hard. Every chance you get, you hit them hard. Every kick you have, you concentrate and you hit the target. Every time you line up for goal, you perform your routine. You go through the process and you nail the goddamn goal. And that was a massive teaching point. So getting back to the ultimate point I'm saying is that whilst in that situation for Ayrton Senna, he didn't need to go as hard. In fact, the fact that he did go so hard and it was informed by potentially, you could say his ego, that cost him. You go across to other sports, it's like, oh no, you do not take your foot off the throttle. You put the throttle to the goddamn floor and you go all the way for, if it's football, 120 minutes, go out there and do your thing. All right, this has gone a little bit too long. I can't really do, uh, I can, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to do anything more on the Ayrton Senna documentary. I hope you got a little bit of an insight into who this guy is and why he was so loved and so revered. Um, unfortunately, his uh, his career and his life came to a, a tragic end. But um, rather than to go into detail on that, um, I would encourage you, I think the documentary might be on, I don't know if it's on Netflix, or maybe it's on Stan, actually. Um, check it out. Um because it's just so goddamn good. A lot of sports documentaries are forgettable pieces of shit, but this is pure magic. And he's a beautiful, beautiful soul. And he's very honest and and open and not as scared to talk about um, God and his spirituality. And I really love that. So rather than the closing out music now, I'm just going to play another uh, song um, that is from the country of his origin, which is... Brazil. Um, yeah, and let's go on a bit of a somber note. It's, yeah, for me, it still gets me a little bit like sad that his career and life ended the way it did when he still had so much to offer and was loved by so many people and particularly meant so much to the people of Brazil who were going through at that time a lot of poverty and a really hard time. At one point in the documentary, they actually say that he is actually the only good thing about our country. They loved him so 
so much. Eterna treva Quando se dissipa